Welcome to Theodora Speaks, a podcast series celebrating risk-taking women who have successfully failed forward on their journey to reinvent themselves and follow their dreams. I am creating a community for women in tech and STEM and offer advisory work as well as course curriculum to help you up-level your risk-taking skills. Visit gailkeller.org for more information. My theme for this week is courage. Society tells us to play it safe, and a lot of people are told to stay in their lane. I hope that today's conversation inspires you to have courage to be your best self. I consider myself a courageous person today, but I didn't always have courage. However, I didn't listen to the negative thoughts in my head or people that were negative around me because I want to have good karma, surround myself with good people, good thoughts. And I've always told myself when it comes to courage, if there's a will, there's a way. Growing up, I was called a mute. I never talked in grade school because I didn't fit in. And I was afraid about what other people would say about me and being judged. And it wasn't until high school that I began to come out of my shell and use my voice to take chances. For example, I tried out for the dance squad and failed miserably. I like to dance when nobody's watching. But I tried out for the speech team and made it. So the lesson in that story is to make the uncomfortable comfortable. In this episode, we converse with Dr. Gazella Samandari, currently a development coach and founder of Nine Paths, a coaching and organizational development services company bringing holistic, sustained change in a way for you or your company to move through the world. I asked Dr. Samandari to be a guest on my podcast because she's simply the best, a true delight. She embodies the fire-in-your-belly traits of taking a risk. From living in four different countries and cultures to reinventing herself and her career from public health to being a chef to a coach. Being a political refugee, born in Iran and raised in the United States, she blends her own experiences with her coaching and developmental training. As Dr. Samandari and I have an enlightening conversation about belonging and risk-taking, listen for when she highlights why humor is so important as an icebreaker. If I had a billboard for Dr. Samandari, as Tina Turner would say, she is simply the best. Hi, guys. Hi. It's so great to see you, and I'm excited that you're with us today to share your journey with us. Thanks, Gail. I'm really glad to be here. So, guys, in our conversation today, we're going to cover various topics from being an Iranian refugee to being a chef to becoming a coach. We'll also highlight your love of fashion. But first, a surprise. And I definitely want to hear your reaction after this. Oh, God. Picture yourself driving on the Rip Bleu on your way to your favorite Mediterranean beach town. As you sit in traffic, you look up and see the following billboard about yourself. Gazalay loves fearlessly, dreams vibrantly, defies gravity. This billboard was created by your Boston College friend, Claire Sayers, Director of Development at Devices for the Disabled and the Chief Mom Officer to Three Beauties. When I asked Claire, why these words describe the very essence of you? She said in her own words, knowing Gazale 
is extraordinary because she is a woman who knows no limits. I may dream of living in Paris, and Gaz moves there and becomes a famous chef. She sees beauty and opportunity all around her and asks, why not, with pure conviction. I have been blessed with her friendship for 20 years. I have watched her excel as an entrepreneur, an advocate, an artist, and a wife. I can't wait to see what happens next. Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to make me cry first thing. I'll let you collect your thoughts. Today's about you and celebrating you and all your amazing accomplishments and the extraordinary woman that you are, Gazelay. To hear something like that from someone like Claire, whom I could like easily turn the words around and say the same of, um, just, I'm here, I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to do here. You know, really, I'm living the life that I am meant to live to like, not only touch others, but be touched by them. You came yeah. to the United States in the 1980s as an Iranian refugee, which we'll discuss in a bit. But first, let's talk about your unique reinvention career path that marries your risk-taking spirit so beautifully, Gazale. Today, you are the founder of Nine Paths, a coaching and organizational development services organization, bringing a holistic approach to individuals and corporations. You use a unique blend of integral development and human-centered design principles with bespoke programs to address the needs of your clientele. If that's not impressive enough, Gaz, you also have a PhD, an accomplished public health executive and owner and founder of Nine Paths Development, a gourmet chef, an adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina. You studied at Boston College, the George Washington University School of Medicine, and health science, Le Cordon Bleu, and then University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And so share with us your journey, Gaz, from Boston College to where you are today. Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny when you read it that way, it's like, is she a Renaissance woman or is she just really unclear what she wants to do with her life? And I would say it's a little bit of both. I never really felt like I could fit myself into a box um, from top to bottom, from like where I live to how I am to what I studied. Like, I just have always been so curious about different things and um, wanting to kind of push boundaries. Maybe part of that is because I'm the only child of like two very loving and protective parents. So it's always been in my nature to be like, let me push this. Let me push this a bit. Um, so yeah, so after Boston College, where I, so you can even tell from my the degrees I got, I had a I was a major in studio art and photography. I was doing a pre-med on the side and I had a minor in social justice. So part of me just felt like that was the most essential expression of myself, which was healing and justice and art. My journey from that point to this has been just kind of dabbling in different areas that relate to those three things and trying to find a way to like integrate that into my whole being. And now I feel like as a coach in this new chapter that I'm starting after having been, you know, a professor and having worked in epidemiology and women's rights for so long, I, I feel like I'm really hitting on the thing that that is unifying those themes in my life because women, I feel like, are truly underserved, um, not only in our society, but all around the world. And that's what got me involved in women's rights to begin with. It can be a, an area that's hard to live in all the time for me myself. And part of me wanted to be in more of a creative space 
and at the same time wanted to do like one-on-one -on -one healing work because the type of work I did in public health was very like population level. So it was policy and um, you know, research, really high level stuff. And I felt disconnected from the outcome. So now as I'm moving into coaching and I'm more and more honing in on the area of coaching to me, which is working with women's empowerment, it feels like the marriage of all those things. I'm really excited about that. So maybe like being a chef and being all these other things was just me collecting, right? Collecting these pieces of myself and figuring out a way to integrate them into this, this woman I'm becoming now. Yeah. Taking all those data traits to what you like and what you don't like and reinventing yourself every step along the way. Yeah. In the good and the bad. And I like what you said <laughs> about what you did before in public health was more of this general demographic, right? All good work, but it looks like you wanted to peel back that onion and understand a specific demographic within that being women. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also something to be said about recognizing that when we are in service to others, we must also be in service to ourselves. And mm. that's, that's something that I think is really easy for us as women to set aside because we're just we're kind of conditioned to like be there for others and give and give and give and never take and never ask. And I think what happened in terms of public health was I loved the work that I did and I still do some of that work for a few clients, but it got to a point where it no longer served me. And I started to feel it. I felt it in my health. I felt it in my mental health. Um, I felt it in my relationships. And so it caused me to step back and be like, hmm, like, where do I come into the equation? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a different way. For me, it was a radical way of looking at my thought of what a woman in service could be. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I see that human giver syndrome, just sort of this innate trait to all women, right? We're supposed to take care of others before we even take care of ourselves. But when we're flying on an airplane, they say, secure your mask safely first and then help those around you. Yeah. So I think that self-care is, is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. So guys, tell us a little bit about your love life. So you're living in Paris now. You were, you've been married not once, but twice. You found love again. So that's a beautiful story in and of itself. We're married to a man first, now a lovely woman. Yeah. So if you can kind of tell us about that journey, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So um, when I, gosh, it's tied up in when I was in Cornell Blue. So I was engaged to a man. We were together for five years. He's a lovely person and he's happy now with his right person. So I'm glad it all worked out the way it was supposed yeah. to. Um, but, you know, there was always something a little bit, just felt a little bit off about my life and not often these ways that we can like really see and center you know mm -hmm. he was so nice and we had a nice house and good life and he was kind and did all the things like the boxes were all ticked right but I remember there being this part of me that was like well I mean I guess I guess this is this is life you know what I mean just sort of I don't want to say resigned that makes it sound so sad I was having a blast of course but I was like I guess movie love is that's just it it's for the movies it's not for me um, and so he had a sabbatical year built in. He was a professor at UNC, had a sabbatical year built in. And he was like, where should we go for my sabbatical? And at that time I was finishing my PhD and so burnt out. And what I would do to relax was like host huge dinners for my friends. Like I would, everybody come over like 10, 15 people. And I would cook all day long. And that was how I relaxed. That's and how also you had, That's Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's the sickness, um, but yeah, but I just be, because what it was about cooking is like, 
you have to be focused in order to cook. You mm -hmm. have to be in the present, right? Or else you're going to chop something off or burn something or hurt yourself or make something that tastes gross. So I really mm -hmm. liked how immersive it was because the rest of my life was completely heady. Like I was just in data and numbers all day. So this also coincided with like um, the movie Ratatouille coming out. Yeah. Do you remember that? That's yeah. <laughs> Yes. And so I'm one night I'm watching this movie, you know, I love cooking and this brat runs off to Paris and like finds his perfect life. And I was like, okay, let's, let's go to Paris. <laughs> like, let's go to Paris. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to take my savings. I'm going to cooking school. Like it just was a flash that came to my head. It was almost like my soul calling out to something radically different. Mm -hmm. So that's where we went. He came along with me. So this is where this, the story gets a bit sticky. And it was in cooking school where I met my now wife. And it was one of those things where, um, have you ever had like a dream and you're just sort of like, you kind of feel like you're watching your life from yeah. behind a curtain or from a third point of view. And it was when I met her that suddenly everything like came into color. Like mm -hmm. suddenly I was like, oh, awake and alive and I could see things and smell things and feel things I hadn't felt. I mean, I don't think ever. Um, wow. So suddenly, yeah. So it was like I had awakened to my life in this way. And I was, I didn't know what was going to happen or how I was going to disentangle myself from the life I had. But all I knew was that I had to be with this person and with this feeling. So fast forward many months and we, kind of the marriage train had left the station so that kind of happened and then a divorce happened but it was all kind of in the span of a year and I ended up back here in Paris and um you know five six years later she and I got married so That's an incredible story <laughs> I mean this is the shortest version of that story I have ever told because it has many many twists and turns but that's the that's the crux of it yeah but I could feel the ups and downs it was a little tragic a little sad the uh, beautiful and amazing and that you you left you you left you took your leap of faith right that's right and that you're right like I'm glad you mentioned the tragic or the sad part of it is because I never wanted to hurt anyone we never do that's never our intention to hurt someone especially someone that we love and who has shown us nothing but kindness but there come sometimes points in our life where we have no choice in order to save ourselves we must Hurt other people and that's another thing I feel like is very uncommon or very <sighs> repressed um, within the average person let alone the average woman because it's like oh I don't want to disturb I don't want to hurt I don't want to be bad I don't want to be unkind um, but it was one of those situations where it was like it's him or me <laughs> and I'm choosing me so <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. that made it a little easier when I was like yeah yeah Good for you. And living in three different countries already <laughs> in your young life, that's impressive in and of itself. Yeah. And the cultural changes you've gone through from a little girl to a successful woman now. Yeah. 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 Tell us a little bit about that journey. Sure. Um, so I was born in Iran um, in 1980, which was right around the time of the revolution in that country, which then led to a war between Iran and Iraq. And it was a high a time of like high activity for refugees coming out of Iran. So that was us. Like my dad, my mom and I um, escaped actually through the mountains, a very kind of 
uh, cloak and dagger adventure uh, when I was about two years old. And when we landed in Turkey, uh, just across the border, we were luckily able at that time to be part of the UN refugee program. Mm -hmm. So they placed us, they placed us in Spain for a few years. Um, and we lived there and for, yeah, yeah, right. Iran and then Spain for a couple of years. And then my mom's dream was always to get us to the U S for my education. Um, it was, I mean, just as it is now, it was then to like the beacon, you know, to the Mm -hmm. world of possibility an opportunity. So she made a lot of sacrifices and so did my dad so that we could come to America and I could get my education. So we came to the States when I was about four, um, right in the DC area and they're still there and we were there ever since. Um, but some part of me just never felt, yeah, like, like I belonged, like I fit in. Um, and so I think part of my whole life has been this journeying trying to get to that place where I belong. Uh, And that's part of the reason I think I also came to Paris eventually. Yeah. And we'll dive into that belonging and those those survival traits in a little bit. But what comes to mind right now at this very moment is your resilience, Mm. guys, just to to everything from your personal life to your professional life, resilience, family, survival. Um, So during the journeys, how do you silence that inner voice and listen to your gut, that inner voice that says, no, I can't, but your gut says, yes, I can. Yeah, I think it does go back to this real primal survival instinct, right? Because that's what the gut does for us. Like the gut is that part of our body that's like, yikes, run away, or yes, go towards this. I mean, it's the most raw and essential part of our humanness. Um, so I think having been a refugee and having had kind of that narrative of survival from a very early time it was just kind of second nature to recognize danger and move away from it or more slowly I came around to recognizing longing as something to go towards and so I think when there have been times in my life where I've wanted to make a change and fear played a role this gut instinct kicked in and said you have to almost, right? Like you have to do this thing in order to be able to live, like truly live the life that you want. And I think that does come from a place of practice in a strange way, like having had to practice that from an early age. Um, Sure. Yeah. When I talk about fear, just in my life, is, is that fear of taking a risk, right? The fear of the what if, but your fear comes from your, your safety, your, your life. And Mm -hmm. so precious. And so, yeah. Yeah, and when you mentioned that actually now, it makes me think of a way in which, yeah, there, there might have been a very base instinct in me to go towards safety, right? And that's how my gut was honed. But in another way, when ordinary fears come up in my life now that I'm safe and sound and, you know, very healthy, knock wood and all that, mm-hmm. um, I feel like it does the inverse thing. It's like, I got to get toward, I got to do this thing that I'm meant to do or else. Now it has this like reverse effect. It's like, if I stay trapped in my fear or I stay trapped in my longing, I'm going to suffer. And my instinct is to get away from the suffering. So I think that's also what allows me or has enabled me to kind of move towards as much as move away from things. That's so, it's unique. It's a unique skill. It's a unique trait. And it's great that you really tapped into that, um, especially with the launch of Nine Paths. So if you had to rewind the clock, guys, what advice would you give your 20-something self? Oh, 
<gasps> oh my gosh. Well, if she would listen to me, which I'm not sure she would. Um, <laughs> um, you know what I would tell her? I would tell her to not sweat it, just not sweat stuff. Cause she already had then as I do now, like a fiery spirit and an energy, like a go-getter attitude. But there was also alongside that a whole bunch of worry, anxiety, suffering, like what if, you know, that what if is so strong in all of our minds, like that inner critic. And it continues. It's always there. It's maybe diminished a bit over the years, but I think there was a lot of times where um, even though naturally my gut or my instinct would be to do something, alongside that would come the woulda, shoulda, coulda. Um, that was ultimately just a drain of my energy. Like I've never done anything that was fundamentally bad for me or that I regret in any way. Um, and so I should just, I, if I could tell her something, it would be to just trust herself more mm-hmm. and, and not sweat it. Mm-hmm. And maybe don't stay inside that box. No, get rid of the box. There is no box. No, then there shouldn't be. It's Someone in your head. In my career a few years ago said to me, oh, Gail, you like to color outside the lines as a negative. And I said, no, that's a positive. And I'm going to keep coloring outside those lines. Yeah. Yes. Good for you. And that's so over now. <laughs> like right. what lines, what bogs, like we're living in this whole new version of the world, which is what's so, so exciting about what you're up to Gail and what I'm up to too. It's like something about this year, this year that has been tragic and horrible in so many ways for so many of us has also been a gift right? Because suddenly all the things we knew to be true, quote unquote, are no longer. And so anything is possible. Um, So I'm excited about the new world that we're stepping into from that regard that like, yeah, maybe we get to say now what we do. I think so. I feel it too. There's a movement going on. And, you know, I think about the roaring twenties after the Spanish flu, you know, pandemic, we're going to experience that too. And even looking back 50 years ago, What's 50 years old this year are the crock pot, the double ovens, Miss Chef. <laughs> um, what else? The Big Mac is 50 years old. Not that I'm a Big Mac fan, but just that it's been oh. around 50 years strong. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. FedEx, overnight delivery, that's 50 years old. So all the inventions and innovation that's going to come out of this, the resilience, the passion, yeah. people yeah. are going to say, you know, life's, life's too precious. Family's too precious. That's and you right. got to love what you do. That's right. That's right. And that's another thing that I think really um, resonates for me with this coaching work that I want to focus more and more on women is because I cannot think of a single woman that I know in my life from all um, economic backgrounds, all sorts of privilege. I can't think of a single one who didn't suffer, really deeply suffer this past year. Um, And there wasn't anyone there oftentimes for them to hold their hands, to tell them it was going to be okay. They're the one that does that for everybody else. And um, alongside all this amazing possibility and roaring twenties and everything that's to come, I think there's also going to be a a deep well of exhaustion that we're going to have to deal with that impacts women differently than it does men. That's just the way that it is. And so what I want for myself as a person in the world is to be there in service of that need um, when the time comes for each woman. And it's, I feel like it's coming. If it's not already here, it's definitely coming. Um, and it's a radical time to rethink what it means for us as women to be in this world and what we want and to center ourselves and to care for ourselves. So 
I'm really excited to be part of that motion, you know? Yeah, that's a really great thing to kind of pause upon, right? Coming out of the hardness of the year that we've experienced, right? We, there, there's greatness, but we also have to address the hardness to get to the greatness. Absolutely. And women often, right, we have to be strong. We don't want to talk about it. We sweep things under the rug, but we can't. And so that's why I think Nine Path is a great gift for people, yeah. for women, for companies to tap yeah. into, to yeah. help people, right? Talking to someone is, is very important. It's part of self-care, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And Gail, I am going to say something on your show that I haven't put on my website yet and haven't made official anywhere, but if it's okay with you, I'd like to like, reveal and a little something that I'm up to. I'm honored. Um, yes. yes. Awesome. Cause I just feel like inspired to tell you now that so nine paths is my kind of global coaching company where I can work with individuals of all kinds and companies, organizations, etc. As I've been working on nine paths, like I said, this need amongst women has just been, I mean, it started like a whisper and now it's blaring loud. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, yeah, coaching is, one-on-one coaching is definitely something you can do. Working with incorporations with women is definitely something you can do. But I wanted to do something more. So I, I can't say much because it's still in developmental stages at this point, mm-hmm. but I'm developing a new, an entirely new program of women's development that centers on individual and group combo coaching um, that I hope to launch sometime later this year, early next year. And that will be separate from what I do from Nine Pads, but it'll be really creating... Um, a community of women around care, self-care mm-hmm. and self-development. So um, look out for that in the future. I love too. it. I love it. Yeah. We'll keep talking and collaborating to oh, yeah. my female community around, you know, uh, reaching out to you for self-care, for example, because Absolutely. I want to create a safe haven for women to come to, to help them take their risks, reinvent themselves, Absolutely. take their leaps. So yeah. exciting. So We'll definitely chat more about that. And thank you for that today. Absolutely. Well, because I can just see in you a kindred spirit, like a kindred warrior spirit. So I I will be recruiting you for the movement. Don't you worry. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. And I found a friend in you and that's so great. So the desire to belong and finding your own path. Let's kind of switch gears and talk about that. So guys, you've expressed how important it is to belong in a world, this world, and carve out your own path. So tell us a little bit about that. When you and I first were speaking about coming on your podcast, which is so exciting, um, you asked me, like, what is it that enabled me to be the kind of person I am in the world? Because I was not even two when we left my country of birth and moved again when I was four. And like, you know, came to America in the 80s, which was a completely different place (laughs) than it is now. Yeah, great music, um, awesome junk food. But like, there was no place for me, right? There was no place for me. I had a weird name. Like I ate weird food. Like I didn't speak the language when I came. So there was a way in which I never truly belonged. And that is one of my oldest and most enduring memories. Um, And that actually lingered throughout the years. Um, Some of that self-imposed, I would say, at some point that became my narrative. Like if you ask Claire, she'll tell you, like, I might've been invited to things and I didn't participate at some point in college because I was like, oh, that's, that's not for me. I'm not meant for that. Like, I'm not truly, they just feel bad. Like, or I was maybe cast as the exotic person, you know, like the, you know, this sort of thing. So there's kind of narrative throughout my life that like, I am special. Yes. And I'm clever and I'm different and I don't totally fit in. And 
that for me gave, like I was always on an edge, right? So there's always this like, I'm always teetering on the brink of not belonging somewhere. So for me, what that enabled was for me to recognize that, okay, if I don't really belong anywhere, then in some senses, I can go everywhere. Because <laughs> I don't belong anyway. So uh-huh. I get to decide, like I get to choose what I do and what I don't do because no one is expecting me. That's the flip side, right? When you belong somewhere, then there are expectations set on you. You have to go to this church. You have to dress this way. So I think at a very early age, I was forced to figure out what it was that I liked and what I wanted to do because no one was inviting me to play dates or no one was like, you know, and on the other side of things, like my parents were new in the country and, you know, scared and they were not comfortable letting me like, you know, be part of the community like I would have been in Iran perhaps. So yeah, from early days, I just had to sort out for myself what it was I was after because no one was going to hand it to me and invite me into it. And I think that theme has endured a bit over the years too. You gave yourself approval to be unapologetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I almost didn't have a choice, right? And when I look back on it and think of the little gods, it's like, oh, you know, you feel for her, like poor thing. She just wanted to like fit in with everybody else. That's what we all want. Um, but standing here from this vantage point today, I'm so grateful for that, right? Because how many of us become trapped? in the narratives that we're given, trapped in the thing we're told that we belong to. Um, And it takes great, great courage later in life to say, oh no, I'm gonna deconstruct this thing and start again. Um, So in a way, so in a way I I was privileged by not having had those constructs put on me in that way. So Gaz, you shared your manifesto with me a couple months back and it Mm -hmm. is lovely. And I'm gonna read a section out loud, that's okay. Yes. And actually, this is perfect because that manifesto is what this new program I'm building is based on. Oh, so timing. Yes. So here it goes. My whole life has led me to this moment, and I know this is in my heart. I was born in 1980 in the midst of the Iranian Revolution, a revolution that broke the backs of women's liberties in a country and a culture that had, until then, held us in esteem and privilege. This legacy of female oppression has in some way or another informed everything I have done, from facing down male harassment in my daily life to devoting my professional career to defending and uplifting women through protection of their human rights. My own healing comes through my capacity to stand up. And that is brave. Those are strong words. It just just shows the resilient woman that you are. And a great example of of true risk-taking and reinvention. So going back to when you were a refugee, Gaz, I can only empathize and imagine there was no set community, like you said a few minutes ago. All the while, you had to navigate a desire to belong while staying true to yourself. So share with us that journey from fleeing Iran and coming to the United States as a child and maybe it's not so much as a child, but in college where you didn't feel you belonged, that community and what you said, okay, I'm giving myself the permission to have the freedom to be my own person. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so we came to the States in 1984 and oddly, the community that we did end up in was of expat Iranian refugees. So there was this grouping, right, of naturally these people and these are the people that I sort of grew up around and with um, 
lovely human beings, but never really quite, never really quite felt like my people. I don't know how to put it. There was a way in which there was so much emphasis on the Iranian identity, of which I am super proud and has a long and storied history. Amazing. Love Iranian food. Great. But there was, it, that community was extremely insular. They had to be, right, to protect themselves. And so what they did was naturally like shut off to the outside world. And I was a very curious child, wanted to be involved in everything, wanted to know about everything. And it felt very limiting to be kind of ensconced in that community. So already from the get-go, I'm like, okay, well, this isn't for me. <laughs> so then I wind up like later in life, you know, high school, everybody has their stories from high school. Like that's just like, yes, we do. I mean, <laughs> right? Like the crux of identity crisis right there. Mm -hmm. um, and college for me was the first time that I was really able to, let's say, like reinvent myself, right? Because here I come to a new town. I never even lived there. Um, I didn't even know Boston College was, <laughs> believe this or not, I did not even know it was a Jesuit school until I got there. It was just two things about it I knew was, A, it's far away from where my parents are. And two, they had a really strong program for volunteer service. So I was like, I'm down with that. And I show up that first day. I'm like, what are all these priests? doing here so <laughs> so in a way I end up in this like environment that is so different from the one that I grew up in raised by a Marxist father and an atheist mother um and suddenly I'm like oh crap like where am I uh but in another way it was like no one knew my history no one knew where I came from I got to really be myself and that was where I did a lot of exploration with my identity and putting it forward in different ways and and I'm not gonna lie like there was things that I would feel sometimes ashamed of, right? Because there's there's a way in which you kind of want to be part of the mainstream. It's comfortable, you know, you want to fit in. And there were parts of me that just didn't have the same experiences as people there. Um, so even with, say what? Oh, be accepted. Yeah. Oh, be accepted, exactly. Um, and Boston College is a school predominantly populated by children of privilege, right? Who come from like, middle upper middle class or even wealthy class families and that was not my case at all so it was like this wonderful weird experiment for me of like who are these people like who am I next to these people and I think um in the first year or two I, I tried really hard to like fit in right like to you know I put on pearls and cardigans sweater sets and that's not me at all <laughs> uh you know and and try to like dumb down my differentness, right? But that didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel good to me. And it was in my junior year where I found this program called the International Assistance Program. So it's kind of like, you know, orientation leaders that you have mm -hmm. in college. It was like that, but for the exchange students that were coming from abroad. And that was where I was like, suddenly, oh my gosh, like I have found my band of misfits. Like we're all kind of all the exchange students come here, they're completely lost. And then the people who are in the IA program are there to help people who feel completely lost. So um, I felt like I finally hit on like this group of people that I really gelled with. And at that same time, um, I was presenting more and more like myself in the world, right? Like unabashedly so. And so then my relationships with people like Claire and those that group of girls became closer because I was becoming more authentic. But there had to be there had to be some signal of safety in that space. And I feel like that program was it for me. 
And that was really where I began to, yeah, like gather up the pieces of myself and put together the puzzle of who I actually am. Right. I love it. I love it. So in those moments, what survival traits and behavioral skills did you learn along the way that you still tap into today, Gaz? Mm, that's a great question. Survival skills. Okay. So one of the things I think I use with good effect is my sense of humor. Um, as someone who maybe didn't always know the language, maybe didn't always know the mores or, you know, what the rules were. I think laughter is something we can all get down with. <laughs> and it's a really, it is, it is. And it's a really, um, I think it's a really human, simple human way to say, I'm not threatening. We can, we can vibe together. Like I'm here to have fun and be kind. And so I think I use my sense of humor. I'm not saying I'm funny, but I'm saying I'm, I'm, Okay, cool. Oh, you can say I'm funny. I'm into it. Um, but just kind of coming at people from that angle, right? Because there's a way that we can approach situations that are new or strange with fear, with trepidation, with anxiety. And what happens, I have noticed, is when you come into a situation like that, other people are going to start feeling that way around you. They're going to like vibe off your energy and be like, oh, this is weird. I feel that suddenly everybody's feeling weird. Mm -hmm. But if you come into a space and be like, Welp, like I know nothing and I'm fine with making a fool of myself, then suddenly everyone is relaxed and they tend to like show up as themselves and give you an opportunity to connect like as two human beings rather than refugee girl came from poor family, blah, 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 and wealthy white dude, you know, whose dad's a billionaire. Like that's one way of looking at ourselves. Another way is like laughing or, or being kind. And so I think that was one of the main things that I took from my time in college was just how to like create goofiness and create, you know, lightness. And that's something yeah. that I, yeah, that I'm trying to cultivate more and more in my life now more than ever. And then the thing that comes after that, which I think is another really wonderful skill um, or alongside that is that I'm just, I'm just endlessly curious about people. Mm -hmm. Like I want to know about them, what they're up to, like how they got here, where they want to go. Um, and that was when I would say in college, when I first honed, really honed my listening skills, like as lame as that sounds, everybody else is working on their, uh, you know, like beer pong, <laughs> like aim, <laughs> and I'm working on my listening skills. But I, I realized, and it ties into this feeling of belonging, I realized that as long as I keep asking questions, people are going to keep talking to me. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, they're going to think that was the best conversation in the whole wide world because they got to talk about themselves forever. We would lose all that nuance mm. and, and not see the ways in which we are the same. Um, so that's something that I think college enabled for me too, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think listening is, is such a skill and a trait that we all could do better at, right? <laughs> in the day, in the age of social media, your voice is heard. Well, that's great. What do you have to say? And, and who's listening, right? Mm -hmm. What does risk taking mean to you? Ooh. Risk-taking to me means in the simplest form, taking one step in a new direction. Just one, not the whole thing. Don't have to accomplish anything. Don't have to be the, this, the biggest or the baddest or any of this. It's just literally turning 30 degrees to the left and mm -hmm. saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my one foot out and see what happens. 
because that's how all really wonderful new things begin. It's with just that first step, right? Like when we think about the whole picture, it's too big sometimes. It's too overwhelming. But if I think about, hmm, all I gotta do is just put my right foot down and then my left foot down. Well, I can do that. I can do that. And if, if we were to look at risk that same way, I think people would be more inspired to do different things that they long for in their life that are just too big or scary at this moment. Mm-hmm. That's so well said, Gaz, because if you think about that whole enchilada of everything we want to achieve, it becomes overwhelming and we don't take the leap. But one step at a time, we can visualize the journey. Yeah. 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 And there's also what it does is it makes it feel safe still, right? Because I'm not like jumping off of something or running t- towards something. I'm just taking one little step. So if right. I don't like it over here, I can just step back. It's cool. And I think that's a part of risk taking that's really important to understand too, is you don't have to get it right, right away. You just have to try, just try. Yeah, that's great advice. Mm-hmm. What tools help you take your risks? Oh, well, the love of my life. For sure. Um, I think emotional and relational support is so key to allowing us to um, take leaps or take risks because, you know, at the end of the day, someone's there to catch you if you fall or that people still love you if you mess up or, you know, whatever the, the narrative is in your head that's making you feel scared about taking the first step. I think it's so important to look to the people in your life who love and support you. Um, as your net, right? Then it's like, oh, I can do this. It's not so scary. I still have, you know, my friend or I have my husband or my wife or my dog. Like it could be any source of emotional support. So that is definitely one of the things for me um, that is super enabling in my life. Yeah. And I also have a great network of friends like Claire and now you um, Mm. with whom I can share my ideas, right? Because that's also really important is to be in conversation with others about our ideas and see what kind of energy that generates. Not only does that give me a platform to talk it out loud and refine it in my own mind, but then it becomes an invitation Mm -hmm. for us to do something together, which then takes away the the like scary, lonely risk feeling. And that feels so enabling when I think of things that way. The support system is so important. And that helps in building a trusted community, a safe place where people can be vulnerable, share best practices and, and learn from one another. Absolutely. Yeah. Community. And it can come in all shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. Love that. Mm-hmm. What advice, Gaz, would you give to someone listening today who maybe feels like giving up on their dreams? What I would say to that person is, I know how you feel. I know just how you feel. You've probably been trying or too scared to try, or there are these barriers that feel completely insurmountable. I know how you feel. I also know that there is nothing, nothing that feels worse than not having at least attempted something that you really care about, right? Because then you can say, I went for it. And if we can start to orient our state of minds towards that courage that it takes just to do it and how valuable that is in and of itself, regardless of the outcome, Mm-hmm. then maybe that would inspire people to just go for it a little bit more. But I think when we get tied up in like, oh, what if I fail, what if I fail? you know, the, the big shiny thing at the end of the road, um, it can get very um, distracting and overwhelming. So I would say like, yeah, don't think about the, 
big old dream. Just think about how good you'll feel knowing you gave it a shot. Mm -hmm. That inspired me. And taking that risk, right? It doesn't have to look like that whole enchilada we talked about a few minutes ago. It can be that one step at a time that you said, Gaz, to make it more digestible. And who knows what that would manifest into? Maybe something we never saw coming in a good way. Oh my God, that's so beautiful, Gail. And that's precisely it. Like, I love how you pull, pull the nuggets right out of my heart that I'm trying to get to is that when in our life has the path we thought we were going to take been the one we wind up on? Never. Never. So if we, if we take past this precedent, then we don't have to worry about the past. We don't have to worry about the outcome. We just have to get ourselves moving um, because that's how life works, right? Correct. Correct. Yes. So well said. So as we wrap here, guys, today, let's do a quick round of questions. The best advice you ever received? Oh, my mom said to me, and this is related to like this book, like uh, some kind of science test I was trying to take and I was having a hard time. I think it was like physics or chemistry. And she said, if someone conceived of it, you can at least learn how to do it. <laughs> really good. Really good advice. Yeah. Really good. Favorite restaurant in Paris? Well, duh. That's my wife's Dirty Lemon. It's like my favorite place on earth. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to plug her. It really is the best place in Paris for a, like a bite and a drink. Tell us one reason the Dirty Lemon is a must visit when in Paris. Oh, uh, yeah. So Dirty Lemon is so much more than just a place to get food and cocktails. It is a space that was welcoming to all sorts of people. Like originally, of course, me and my wife were queer. Um, it was started because there was no like chic place for lesbians to go in Paris. But as the idea evolved, it really became about everybody feeling comfortable. One of the main appeals about Dirty Lemon, you can be anybody, old, young, straight, gay, single, and a couple, and it will feel like it was made for you. So it's a place to belong. What's the favorite mm -hmm. cocktail to order at the Dirty Lemon? One of my favorites is the cocktail that I shared with you, which was like a new take on Cosmopolitan. Yeah, I love a good Cosmo. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, for the listeners out there, go to gailkeller.org for Gaza's recipe of the Cosmopolitan. Favorite fashion designer? I can say my favorite current designer writ large that people would know is Jacquemus. Do you know Jacquemus? Yeah, yeah, love Jacquemus. And, however... One of my closest friends, Kaisa Kinnunen, she's pretty much like head of design at Celine. And they've redone their whole thing since she's been there. She used to be at Balenciaga, now she's at Celine. And she's like updated their look. So Celine used to be kind of stodgy and old fashioned, but now it's like super hip song. I want to thank you for your time and sharing the sense of belonging and what makes you a successful risk taker. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> thank you gail it's been so so lovely to talk to you and i just can't wait i can't wait to see everything you do out in the world thank you for listening to my podcast you have a lot of podcasts to choose from and i'm elated and grateful you're here a special thank you to dr samandari for sharing her story with us a special shout out to you, our listeners, and to New Voice Studios for producing our podcast series. The three key takeaways from today's conversation are, number one, belonging. 
Don't have the not meant for me attitude. It's okay to shine and be different. Turn the feeling of not belonging into going everywhere where you set your own expectations and give yourself the freedom to do so. Number two, Dr. Gaz highlights on being endlessly curious. Hone in on your listening skills. In a conversation, it's better to listen and to speak less. And lastly, risk-taking. Don't chew and bite off the whole enchilada at once, but therefore take it one step at a time to feel more comfortable about your curiosity and to keep that courage alive. Be comfortable with that uncomfortable. And if you're dealing with indecision in your career, visit gailkeller.org for more information. In addition to my podcast series, I offer group advisory sessions as well as course offerings on how to prepare you to be a risk taker and face your fears. With educational curriculum focused on instilling the values of courage, decisiveness, confidence, assertiveness, and balance. Speaking of courage, on my website, you'll find recipes from each of my podcast guests. Check out Dr. Samandari's recipe for Cosmopolitan Cocktail. The goal of my virtual cookbook is to help you, our valued listener, a busy professional, easier to-do list and have one less thing on your plate to plan for the day. So enjoy and bon appetit. Stay courageous. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.